Home Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Thousands of years. In the land of the 
Thank you. 
into the realm of radical and racist political philosophy. But there you go, transcended the English concept of fair play, from which it was seemingly derived, and took quiet regard for those who respected the rules of the game as they stood. As they go, implied a universal equality of opportunity, they transcended the rules as they stood. The status quo was unfair, and there you go, demanded that the rules be ignored, especially if the rules were drawn up by the privileged and powerful few. Intimately related to the concept of fair play is the great Australian sacrum of mateship, a code of individual conduct towards another. For convicts, itinerant bushwhackers, gold miners, and white of the Anzacs, the harsh conditions of social and economic deprivation that often confronted early white Australians demanded a solidarity above the influential and elite to work and survive. Mateship became the norm across the country. The standard of conduct was relevant to bank clerks and to shearers. Embraced by conservatives and the left alike were athletes and playwrights, by diggers and Aboriginal activists. Its talismanic value for the nation was so great that John Howard even attempted to assert it into the preamble to the Constitution before being persuaded that this was taking things just a bit too far. The Vago and Mateship were both seen as distinctly Australian. Australia paradoxically considered itself to be more British than British, the vanguard of the empire, while also being anti British in application. Provided ourselves of having all the benefits of empire, prestige, wealth, security, without the drawbacks of privilege and its markets, a class system, and polite manners. The Australian legend was one of those history books that broke free of academia and shaped the way many Australians saw themselves in the contemporary world. The house that I grew up in in regional Queensland had a battered old copy on the bookshelves. The faded brown cover included the image of a hand drawn slab. And as a child, I understood the book to be a stranger cookbook rather than a critique. While Russell Lord was right, even in 1958, to highlight the peculiarity of the most urbanised country on earth defining itself British and geography, the power of the Australian legend was so strong that even during my childhood, three decades after its publication, it still felt like a natural articulation of what it meant to be Australian. Alongside the stories my family told about their settler ancestors, I was surrounded by imagery of the Australian legend while growing up. I learned bush ballads to recite at school and dressed as a swagman for school plays. We visited the John Terry bullshit on school excursions to work out a cracker whip and shoe a horse. This mythology was so ingrained in me that while feeling homesick in my first extensive absence from Australia, studying in the United States, I learned to recite the plants that the overflow to myself. Which I'd still memorised after a decade, while trudging home in the alien sleigh that had never left me. I told myself that I somehow loved things, even though I'd like to change my ways. Despite having grown up in a suburban life in a regional town, despite never having been a driver, stopped at the shootout at the station, and that was Russell Lord's point. The Australian legend was always more of a mystique that seduced Australians than a livelihood reality in the country. Regardless, as Nicky Eichberg has accurately identified it, it was culturally important for the coloured Queenslanders to have a horse particular to their home. And by setting out a normative description of the typical Australian, the Australian defined what it meant to be un Australian and that its proponents police the boundaries of that identity. The problem with all of that is that while we were setting out the uh, early uh, boundaries of the new Australian identity that emerged in the late 19th century, we also refused to believe that the other of Asia and the other was particularly China um, to, to highlight the boundaries of Australian identity. And we created a projection 
think how successful we are in each of those areas. We're one of the few countries in the world who are not as, not more like the rich are, but more richer than the poor. More at earn more, better educated, better health outcomes, less likely to be in prison. And it's an extraordinarily successful story, and so we should be proud of it. So I can compile them into some of the other studies of this kind of place that they happen and that we're able to put way back in Rochester Street and hopefully one of the smaller ones will be there. Um, I'd sort of say in this primary place we go, well, we've got to be proud of what we've produced as a country. Um, you know, people, congratulations to Canada, it seems to me like I can give you a speech on one day, and I'm a Canada hugger on another day, and I'm a Cold Warrior, and it's just like, Australia's got to be able to handle the fact that it's more than just our country, it's more than just our schools. Um, the constraint is very true that structural racism is a problem in this country. Uh, 14% of the Australian population are very educated. Less than 2% of leaders across every public institution in this country are educated. So we have parliament, we have public libraries, we have universities in particular, we have public service. senior management levels who are the subjects of public constraints, of their representatives and leaders, where they're performing at every other level of the organisation is something appropriate for us to deal with these structural racism in this country. Um, at the same time, um, it is true to say, as Ben said, that not all of the activities that the Chinese government or the CCP are benign. Specificity, I think, is what this is going to afford us. We've just got to hold people to a higher set. We need to be much better at this for a better quality conversation about this. That leads to shorter generalizations and then very specific about what it is that we can say. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, the next question I have to, I wanted to ask is again about sort of national Thank you. 
I think this sums it up once I listened to this morning earlier. Um, and he said, makes the point that wherever Chinese go, their influence by the culture of the society from them to not the other way around. He says, take, take, a, take a Chinese and take them to the United States and he becomes a rampaging capitalist because of the example before him. Take a Chinese to Singapore and he becomes a society priming uh, contractor with designs and a license. Um, take a Chinese to Australia and he becomes to Australia and he becomes an advocate for the working man's paradise and a trade union organizer. And I mean I think that just sums it up like that we've got to have confidence in our own values and who we are as Australians. Um, to think that you know what really brings the people home is it just not what what our values are, but that is it really is it ultimately part of what why we're here?
because when you try to pick the flower that you want to be, you won't have it. This will be with him. But it's what I would say, trouble rage. It, and now I should be encouraged to um, speak my mind, but that should be some process. I mean, to bust out something that is going to work strongly with me, and that is usually true. But it doesn't because I see the system. It's not conductive. There is no atmosphere in psychology. You can learn a language, you can read a language, and then you go to the corresponding public secondary school and continue that language. That is a huge failure of the education system. The concept is that this is very much this. Every time you want big news in your school, all the other ones are in the past classes and in the past. But there's no possibility of my state. Thank you. 
project finishing after the city meetings. And Christ said, you know, what you do for him, what what is that going to do? And then it required me to step into the financial aid position. But that night, I got the opportunity to go to the And before we get to something, Australia in the 1880s, 1890s, 
other thing that we that we don't appreciate so much is um, the, the treasures of that legacy. So in Victoria, uh, every Easter I took my kids to vinegar. Vinegar vinegar is the festival that is the longest continually running community festival in Australia. It's a, it's led primarily by the Chinese community and the Vietnamese. And every year uh, it, it is a festival that
Thank you for listening to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter as we continue Goff's work and in the great man's words, maintain your enthusiasm.